Swivel. From Swivel Media and the Product Bus, this is The Bootstrap. I'm Scotty Allen. The Bootstrap is your source of news and resources all about building startups from scratch. On this episode, growth and product marketing specialist Alex Urquhart joins me to chat about cracking the code of total addressable market. But first, let's take a look at some things you should know. Here's the startup rundown for Friday, the 8th of December. AI may or may not be coming for our jobs, but it's fair to speculate that we're going to start seeing it used as a justification for poor performance and layoffs. Aussie tech startup Edrolo has announced it's laying off 30% of its workforce, citing disruption to its classroom content platform from the rise of AI. What doesn't get a mention is Edrolo's consistent underperformance against VC expectations. Founded in 2011, the company took on VC funding with the goal of competing with global players in the market and has struggled to achieve growth ever since. Is this excuse an outlier or just the tip of the iceberg? We'll wait and see. The Australian startup and VC ecosystem is in an uproar at the moment due to the federal government's eyeing of new merger restrictions that some say will divert venture capital outside of the country. According to the Australian Financial Review, the federal government is looking to overhaul merger laws and the ACCC has proposed a mandatory approval regime coupled with the current competition tests that ensure mergers aren't hurting competition or public benefit. Gilbert and Tobin competition law partner Elizabeth Avery called the proposal draconian, stating that it would require parties proposing a merger to prove an unreasonable negative, therefore making venture capitalists less likely to invest in Australian companies. While the ACCC has cited the energy transition and technology transformations as its reasoning for more scrutiny, critics point to these exact developments to prove the need for fast and easy business decisions. What's better than one space camera? Well, two space cameras, of course. Space News recently reported that the Australian startup Infinity Avionics is developing a dual-headed space camera system for space-based surveillance. CEO Igor Dmitrovic stated that the camera is designed to pick up debris that is too small for regular cameras to observe. The camera will also reportedly be able to detect spacecrafts that may be losing control or other potentially dangerous anomalies. The startup, founded as a spin-off from the University of New South Wales in 2020, is working with approximately $1 million of funding from the ACT government to bring this technological leap to reality. Electric vehicles are becoming more and more a part of our lives and continue to threaten to leave legacy motor companies in the dust. TechCrunch reports that despite the market success of General Motors' announced $10 billion buyback of its shares on Wednesday, the enthusiasm may be short-lived due to the company's underinvestment in the EV and AV industries. In October, the company announced that it would be scaling back its EV production after a disappointing set of sales figures post-2020. GM flagged customer demand as the primary reason for this choice, despite EV sales hitting a record high in the U.S. this Q3. Ford and Toyota are also reportedly facing a similar dilemma, with Tesla's recent price cuts putting the squeeze on the EV margins of legacy companies. And finally, could it be that the VC landscape in Australia isn't a level playing field? Nick Bonnyheady from the Australian Financial Review is reporting on grumblings in the Aussie VC space about Blackbird, the largest VC firm covering Australia and New Zealand. Anonymous sources from smaller funds, and that would mean ones that have less than Blackbird's portfolio of over 100 companies and $7 billion in managed funds, are complaining that the depth of Blackbird's pockets are making it impossible for them to compete, and that Blackbird is writing checks that overestimate the potential of many companies in order to squeeze out the competition. A suggestion that Blackbird might be overvaluing some of its stock? Well, I never. And that's the Startup Rundown for this episode. We'll be back in a moment. Total Addressable Market, or TAM, is an important validation metric that is often misunderstood and misused. So how do you navigate TAM without getting lost in the numbers? To help me unpack this, I'm joined by Alex Urquhart. 
Alex is a growth and product marketing specialist and the founder of Market Science, helping businesses understand, prioritize, and action the next steps in growing their business. Alex, welcome to The Bootstrap. Thanks, Scotty. Great to be here. So we are talking about Total Addressable Market today, or TAM. What is that? And why do we talk about it in the startup space? Yeah, uh, good question. So Total Addressable Market, sort of in the name, essentially is just the market, I guess, in which your product could be sold to, I think is the simplest way to put it. I think in terms of a startup, I think it's a really important metric when it's framed properly. So it's sort of an investor or you know an employee or a founder needs to know, if I put this work in and I build this product and I try really hard, can I sell it to six people or six million people? And if it's six million, great. If it's six people, maybe it's not worth the time and effort. It's good to be specific so you can target your niche and make sense and address a specific pain. But if the market's too big, you know, it's people... I see sometimes people say, oh, our ideal customers between 18 to 65 and male, female of any occupation. It's like, well, that's a, that's a pretty big TAM, which is a great thing. That's a, a huge market, but it can get a bit confusing because it's like, well, who specifically do you sell to? How are you going to help them? Total addressable market, essentially a bunch of definitions. Simplest way to think of it is the amount of people in the world who can probably buy your product. So is this a reliable indicator of the potential growth of a startup? Is a bigger TAM automatically better? Short answer is I'm a big advocate of no, though I think some people could debate me on that very easily. But I think sort of that same sense again, right? I think there's probably a balance between obviously a market needs to be big enough that there's enough people that can buy your stuff, right? Like there, there, there is enough people out there that can sustain a business long-term. You can grow the product and we, and we can scale a business accordingly. Like I said, if it's, if it's people in your hometown, on your suburb or on your street, you'd be very limited and a very, very short story. Whereas if we keep it too big, and this is something I believe we don't talk about enough, is that when, when someone says, oh, I, you know, we've got 4 million people, oh, sorry, 4 billion people that we can sell to, it's very, very exciting. And you go, wow, you know, even if we sold to 1% of these people, we're, we're talking billions of dollars. It's fantastic. But then when we look at that and go, for a startup, it's the, the success of a startup is that you've got very little resources, you've got very little time, and you've got a sort of a half-finished product. You've got an MVP. That's sort of getting there. So you have to, in order for a product to work and be attractive to their buyers, it has to do something better than anybody else. And if you try to do everything all at once, you'll be average at a lot of things. But if you pick one thing and you become really good at it, it's much easier, much faster and quicker to do that. And that's the the other end of that scale. Because obviously the more specific you are, the smaller that market is. So I think it's a bit of a spectrum. And I think in terms of a TAM, for instance, in an investor's deck, I think you need to tell the full story to say, hey, you know, we help white collar professionals. Great. A lot of those in the world. But chapter one, you know, first stage of this journey is we're going to help early stage accountants in Queensland, Australia. You know, that's small, specific, but makes your marketing much easier because it's people know it's like, that's, that's not me. So it's not for me. So what are some common mistakes that you see early stage founders making in regards to how they express or calculate their total adjustable market? That's another good question. So I'd say like, yeah, I don't know if there's mistakes, right? Because I think it, it's kind of hard to, you don't know until you know, you know, you could go out there and say, I'm going to make an app for anyone who does exercise, right? And who am I to say that's not right? You could be very lucky. You could nail the right fit. It could be very uh, consumable. It's very handy. It's helpful for everyone. And you could be very right. Statistically speaking, it, it is a long game of iterating and trying making something work. So I'd say the, the, back to that point before, the, the biggest mistake, I think people go too big. And, I, I, and I, I'll be honest, I think it's, I've been in the same shoes as well. I think founders and investors and people who run or manage startups, it's, it's almost like a, t- a sense of FOMO, like fear of missing out. Mm-hmm. People, people get a bit like, if I, if I just say that example before, accountants in Queensland, early stage career, you know, with this specific problem, it's sort of it brings this doubt of like, oh my goodness, you know, there's only like a couple hundred, couple thousand people who fit in that scenario. You know, that's 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 not going to make much money at all. You know, we all desperately want to be this unicorn. We all desperately want to have this big story and this huge, you know, billion dollar valuation. So I think people go, no, no, no. You know, we can help any professional. We yeah. can help any professional that exists. And it goes too big. And then when you look at something like a product, for those of uh, those who are listening have done product before, trying to do multiple use cases in the early stage is you dilute it, it's confusing, it's over the top, it's half finished, it's not very helpful. And then if anyone who's marketing it, if I'm approaching those accountants, for, for, for example, it's, it's very clear, right? I'm going to go to wherever young developing accountants are mm. and I'm going to market in that space yeah. or I'm going to phrase my language 
and my channels, you know, I would look at this at maybe social media, right? As opposed to hard print, I would look to, and it will help you define your market. I say market attack, but that's a bit too full on. Market approach is probably more, is, is a nice way to say it. But your market approach and, and having a TAM that is, as I said, the mistakes I feel a lot, people go too broad and it becomes really hard to get traction. But then also not going too specific, but specific enough that can least you can cement your niche because what people don't think about is that, okay, once you do nail that niche, if you're that good and you do really good and you capitalize on those couple of hundred or couple of thousand people, then you can expand. You add more functionality, you look at how else you can do it and you sort of maybe go horizontal or vertical of, okay, now we've, we've owned this niche. We're the best people at this thing. Let's go to New South Wales as an example of that same scenario mm. again, or let's go to dub, or let's go to the, the US and expand that. TAM is good because mm. it shows the big picture, but not forgetting to just start with a specific niche first. Mm. I feel like I can tell when I am being pitched something that has been through too many kind of incubators and mentor sessions because the more feedback that you get, if you can't kind of sift and sort that, you end up with 17 use cases for mm. your idea rather than that really narrow piece that you're talking about. And I think that that mm-hmm. is often a real challenge, partly because if you believe in what you're doing, you can see all of the different uses of it. But understanding that when you actually are presenting that to someone who's trying to get it for the first time, it makes it actually harder for them to understand what it is or mm-hmm. where that real uh, take-up space is that people are going to latch onto it. And so I feel often like mm-hmm. I'm trying to whittle back to where did this originally come from? Who did you think this was for at the start? And that may or may not be the right answer, but it's that's something to peel back to because what I get, and we were chatting about this before we started recording, is people that say, oh, this is a, this is a unicorn for sure. And I think they don't mm. understand that that is, can be a real red flag to investors mm. if you can't back that up with... Uh, some mm-hmm. really clear modeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's think what you will, I guess, of Jeff Bezos, but I think he's got some, got some good lessons that he's definitely learned along the way, but something that he says about there's the unicorn or there's uh, disruption is another big buzzword that thankfully I think is dying out. But mm-hmm. I don't know. I've, I endured it today. <laughs> disrupt <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 i mean and it's kind of funny right because even that word disrupt it is still it's interesting it's enticing and and good technology can can be disruptive but i think like a lot of things it gets overused a lot and it gets like it gets used so often that it loses meaning yeah. same with things like innovation alongside democratize right yeah, yeah or innovation yeah. or or streamline you know and anyway <laughs> there's a lot of things like that but i think there's a thing that he said that I, I'm really happy about. And then he was, he was doing a forum at a bunch of startups. And he said, the, the flavor of the month is people talk about disruptive technology. And he said, but it's not up to the startup to, be, to say they're disruptive. It's up to the market. Yeah. And it's like, you can, you can think you're a unicorn. You can think you're disruptive. You think you're changing the game or all those other buzzwords. But uh, he said, the only thing that's, that's disruptive is customer adoption. And you know, I'm not going to take credit for that, but I love that sentence. And it's really true. And I I talk to people about this and they say, oh, we're doing this and we're expanding here and we're doing that. And it's like, okay, show me the customers. I'm keen to talk to your, your customers about it. And when I spoke to recently, he said, oh, we're expanding to, they're Australian, we're expanding to the UK and to the US. It's great. That's fantastic. Great work. How, you know, how are you doing that? And they said, well, we're, good, we're just going to run some ads soon. We're going to you know, meet some partners over there. I was like, well, you're not, you know, that's a plan to do so, but you're not expanding there yet. You know, until you've got a customer that says, we love what you're doing. It makes total sense. We really want to use you. Like, yeah, that or that or that old um, saying of if you're truly brilliant, people will tell you. You don't have to tell other people. And it's like, <laughs> and it's a it's a it's a pretty good lesson. And I think the same with with like startups. If you're that good, people will talk about you. Your customers will talk about you. You don't need to say you're disruptive or a unicorn. Yes, we've fallen into this trap where we want to build a global phenomenon without. Mm-hmm the building blocks that come with that. I call it Uber in a box where people are like, oh, it's the Uber for mm-hmm. this. And they, their map is how this is going to launch globally, but they can't tell you where it's going to start. And to have mm-hmm. to go right back to Uber that we know now is not the Uber that it was on day one. And mm-hmm. how all of those models started with a lot of testing, a lot of learning, 
working out what people wanted and you've got to start somewhere. So finding that space mm. where, and, and this is where I think total adjustable market can be for bootstrap startups in particular. And we'll talk about um, mm. investors in a moment, but for bootstrap startups in, in particular, it is, it's not irrelevant, but it is something where you can spend a lot of time focusing on how many millions of people could we sell this to when you haven't worked out how to sell mm. it to one. And you find that one person that, that actually wants it then work out, are there more of you or, or are you in? Mm. And it's got to, it's mm. got to start mm. somewhere. I think that that is a challenge. On, on the investor side, what are investors looking for in terms of how you express and calculate TAM? Yeah, I mean, I think, and again, I think every investor, similar to every startup, it, everyone's very different, but at least what I've, what I've noticed, at least hearing the opinions of a lot of investors is Anything realistic and particularly a seasoned one, like I find if someone's done this a hundred times, 200 times, I'm not, I'm not going to swear on this, on, the, on this podcast, but you know, they can, they can smell rubbish when they, when they, mm. when they see it. So mm-hmm. like if you're sort of sitting there with, as you said, no customers, no, the product's half done, you haven't done anything yet. And you're sort of saying, yeah, first year, we're going to acquire 5% of the total addressable market of 500,000 people. It's like, it doesn't take a genius to go, well, that seems highly unlikely. Like you haven't shown <laughs> any evidence. You haven't got me any fundamental proof. And I, I think same as the start, I think so much of it is logical. And I know there's a lot of acronyms and sayings and stuff like that, particularly in investors and particularly uh, VCs that makes it sound really complicated. But at the end of the day, selling your product, I feel it's the same thing of selling it to investors as it is to customers. You need to give them confidence and show them proof or show them evidence that it is working. If you use a cricket analogy, like a strike rate, like Yes, you mainly have 10 customers, but if you've acquired 10 customers after sending out 12 emails, that's pretty interesting. We say if I was going to, going to invest, but if you've, if you've demoed your product to 2,000 people and you got five customers, that'd be concerning. Mm-hmm. Giving, they're the same as you, right? They don't spend their money on things that don't make sense and they definitely don't invest in things that they aren't confident in. So I think when it comes to investors looking at TAM, like I said, I think telling the big story of sort of saying, hey, you know, what I'm thinking with this product is right now we're starting here, the total addressable market that if we were to, for example, sell to all accountants, I'm using that same analogy, all accountants around the world, you've got X amount of millions of, of sort of people. So we've got that horizon, that trajectory that they know, hey, that best case in two, three, four, five, ten 10 years time, we've got a plan, we've got a path, we're not limited on, on year three, we're not going to sell to everyone and call it a day. Like TAM is really great. It shows you where you're going. But then rationalizing that TAM back, I think, and I feel investors will judge you on how you rationalize that. And if you just say, you just say, oh, we'll sell to 1% in the first year. First question is, how'd you get that 1%? Mm-hmm. Why 1%? What, what makes you think you're going to get that? And if you can back that up and go, well, okay, as of today, we're, we're doing 50 demos a month. Uh, 10 of those are converting. We're upselling one of those every month. You do the trajectory, then we should be X here in this sort of time. Or it's like, we're going to invest more in channels here, here, and here. And from this Another saying I like to is startups, especially businesses in general, but startups don't have plans or, or startups don't have control. They have hypothesis or have hypotheses mm. is like they can say, hey, I, I th- we're going to make and people go, we're going to 10x growth next year. How? Explain to me how. Yeah. Most can't yeah. from my experience, but with the evidence and with the hypothesis saying, hey, right now we're getting 10 new customers a month. We're going to double whatever is causing that. And we think we're going to hit 300 by next year. If I'm an investor. That's legitimate. It's clear. And, and again, for that, going back to that TAM, then you can relate it back and go, well, that's 0.2 of our percent of our market. There's still so much more to go. We, we've got so much growth that's potentially happening. Exactly. Soon. Obviously, the, the nature of the product, the size of the ticket, make a difference to the sort of TAM that is needed, I suppose, to justify doing the work. But if we think B2B for a moment, that's somewhere where you, you really, Particularly in Australia, often you can get it down to the exact number of businesses that may want your product. It can be good in terms of validating that it isn't so niche that it can't be profitable or mm-hmm. that maybe it isn't actually a, a, a scalable product. It's a, a service. And I'm really surprised when the numbers are so easily accessible at times that people don't mm-hmm. actually do that work. So we're selling to. Uh, this kind of business that does this kind of work. Ah, how many mm. of those mm. are in Victoria? Do you even just as a starting point? Mm. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. we don't really know. That is that sort of confirmation bias. I find that often that comes out of 
often from people where they know the industry or they might actually be mm. the user themselves. And so they've, mm-hmm. they've got a product that they've made or someone's made for them that they think, oh, mm-hmm. everyone else who does this would want this, but they don't actually know how many mm. people, other people really do stuff the way that they do stuff. So uh, that is uh, 100%. Yeah, so double-edged sword is... I completely agree. And I think there's... I started a company a couple of years back and like my first meeting was pretty much on this topic and it was... I, I call it like SME bias, like subject matter expert bias, because it's like... It's a good thing that I think SMEs build the or part of the founders. I always think founders who, for example, a nurse who works in nursing for 20 years and then or whatever it is, 10 years, and then goes, I've seen this problem inside and out. Mm. I'm sick and tired of it. I really want to address it. I know my friends hate it. Again, it's a hypothesis. It's really great to go. Oh, well, okay, that sounds like a good a good model. And you are intimately close with the industry and with the with the problem. So you're going to see things that a developer or a product manager don't yet know because you're so familiar with the use case. That's a great thing. But when people, I think, go down too far on that, and I I work with people that sort of go, well, no, I would never do that, or you know, I, I wouldn't find that valuable, or no, they'll never do that. And you can get dragged down of like, yes, you are a subject matter expert. You know that you know the product quite well but if, if you're gonna if you want to sell to people other than yourself mm-hmm. you have to seek feedback yes you have to go out and like and build it out and i try to say like you do the line of best fit you know everyone has all these sort of wants and needs and and as an sme you are one data point yes. you're a good data yes, point and a reliable one but yeah you're one and you yeah. you need 100 if not thousands to validate what you want to do and that's when hopefully the power of a product manager comes into it and, you know, or a product marketer and can go, Hey, yes, you've had this problem, but you had that problem because you were, you worked in this niche. Mm. Whereas I've spoken to 50 people now who are across all these different areas. And actually the problem looks more like this. It's like, okay, maybe that's a pivot or, or a refinement of a change. But I think SMEs are good to, to rely on, but they're not the gospel. You shouldn't take it for their full word. You should validate everything. Yes. They say. Well, I think too, in the bootstrapping space, one thing that I see quite commonly is a founder or a group of founders who have come out of the industry that they want to solve a problem for. And there's so much power in that, but it is that case mm. of the longer that you wait to have somebody in the room that sits outside that, the harder it is to express it. We've been working mm-hmm. for a few months in a a really large scale project in an industry that like I, I couldn't even, I mean, I can't say, but I couldn't even begin to explain it on one level. It was, uh, it's very complex, but, and at the yep. beginning there were a few kind of sits and starts where they were like, Oh, maybe it's just that you don't understand the industry. And finally one of my colleagues mm-hmm. said, the thing is, is that if we can't get it, in the amount of time that we're spending, there is no way an investor is going to give you that much attention if you to, to try and work it out. So, if, and I think that mm-hmm. was a really good turning point where they were like, oh, yeah, it's not mm-hmm. because you, mm-hmm. when you're in it, you don't know the language and the mm-hmm. acronyms and, and things that are foreign to other people and most mm-hmm. likely are going to be mm-hmm. foreign to investors or even a lot of other people in that industry that you might be selling mm-hmm. to. So, so it's a bit of a tangent, but I think that is very applicable. And, and I, I, what I find and what I am constantly encouraging people to do is you have to be constantly putting yourself in a position where you are explaining to people what you're doing as to get mm-hmm. the feedback, to see the reactions, to see what doesn't land, to see the bits where mm-hmm. they answer a question and you're like, I don't know, you know, all the mm-hmm. words come out. Mm-hmm. And the, the longer that you mm-hmm. sit in your own confidence of what you're doing, the more mm. likely it is that you're going to be building something that no one's ever going to understand. 100%. Yeah. And, and like that whole SME perspective and, and getting that thought, I always feel that it's really good from zero to one or like the first two steps because, yeah, they've got that inside of thought and they're, they're going to help with the MVP and also their network. To your point there too, like I, I usually get asked by startups, like either not even pre-seed, like before MVP really early, they got, they got their idea and they go, you know, should I, should I run ads? Should I do a wait list? Should I do this? And I, I always believe the first step, and frankly, it doesn't really, really matter where you're at, is go try to have 50 conversations with the, your, or who you think your ideal buyer is. Mm-hmm. Because that's another thing with Tam as well too, right? Like with Tam, you might go, we're a really great fit for accountants. And then you might get out there and you start going through it all. And then you realize that this process improvement that your, your, your system was going to do 
maybe it's not as valuable to them, but it turns out it's super valuable for like lawyers mm-hmm. or for example. And it's like, oh, okay, so maybe that hypothesis again, that wasn't right. Like it's actually better off over here or it's better off for the administrators of their team or something like that. But yeah, I think the first thing is by far, and every company I work with, as much as I can, I don't like to bother customers, but talk to some if I can, the customer success people or the sales people is even better mm. sitting on the front line, hearing hearing someone pitch it than hearing you know the raw feedback. Um, particularly founders, as much as some non-sales founders would rather chew their arm off than do a sales calls. It's like, I, 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 I try to tell them like the rest of your journey is going to be so much harder if you don't bite the bullet now. And I think at least for the first, however many customers, again, depends the type of product, but be in every call, ask questions, poke holes in it, like ask as many as Because if you're right, if you have this hypothesis that you think it is, is a certain way, then you'll either be pleasantly surprised and you'll go, I was right all along, it all works. Or you'll go, holy crap, that's not worked out anywhere near the way I want it to. And it at least it'll tell you sooner rather than later that you need to change as opposed to spending two years going down a rabbit hole. Mm. I think that is so important. I think that's where the importance of a total adjustable market is it, it can be just an academic thing if you can't actually show the steps that you're going to take to get there. Like, what? Is, so what? You reckon two million people mm. would want this, but if you haven't sold it to three, mm. you are. Mm. And, and I think sometimes what we want to do is, particularly in the age of Zoom and remote work, and, you know, I'm like, I would happily never leave my, my desk if I, and talk to actual humans mm. if I didn't have to. <laughs> it can be really theoretical, like, oh, yeah, we've got all that. But it's like the actual execution. You've got to get out there and have those conversations. And what I say to people is until such time as we are scaling, which means that we can sell faster than we can deliver, until we hit that Mm -hmm. point, everybody's job has to be sales because otherwise Mm -hmm. there is no point. The why are we still resourcing development or resourcing mm. x if we're not selling particularly bootstrapping mm-hmm. because that is that that mm. piece where and this is one of the the whole I, I guess points of this podcast and my business is that we don't have enough good education out there about strategies about how to test and learn that are not on a vc budget so obviously, if mm-hmm. I'm funded, mm-hmm. then I've got a certain amount of money to test and experiment with that I don't have as a bootstrapper. Mm-hmm. And there are times where it is, let's stop building until we've actually sold something mm-hmm. so that we can then, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm working with a client on this this morning where that they've done a really good job of understanding we need to, to we, we've built to this point. We have very specific mm-hmm. clients in mind. And now we need a couple of them to buy and want what mm. we are offering before we spend more time on the development. Because the mm-hmm. yeah, yes, I would would it be more fun to just kind of try and add new features and see if someone will buy? Of course. But mm. it, it doesn't actually mm. change that. You've got to get out there and have those conversations. And I'm particularly thinking of a couple of co-founder teams that I work with where there's one client-facing person and then other behind-the-scenes mm. people. And it can become very like, well, why aren't you selling? We're making this amazing thing. And that's mm. people that I'm saying to you, mm. if you, if this isn't selling yet, then your job is selling. Your job is not coding. Your mm. job is selling. Mm. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> and, and, and even if it's not direct, it's like I try to get around that by telling people it's called research and <laughs> all of a sudden they're more open to doing sales calls because it's like, the moment they feel like they have to push a product, which by the way, isn't selling, but like <laughs> it's a really bad way of thinking about it. But I think it's just got this dirty word that everyone is shies away from it so quickly, mm-hmm. but it's, it really is. It's, I always say like connecting your product to the market or that, whatever you want. I don't really care. You know, you have a calls, have emails, surveys, whatever you want to call it, but you need to figure out that if it is valuable and how it is valuable. And I agree, even the, the product or the dev team, like just go out and talk to people, join in on, on, on sales calls and, the first couple of steps, and I, I'm a big advocate for it, but actually I met a guy recently who did a sort of a explainer or intro video because I guess even if you release the product, your first thing is always like your website or your or your ads or whatever that looks like. And he did like a one minute quick, hey, here's this thing, here's a problem, here's how it helps, here's how it works. And he did that via recording like a Figma video, like just didn't create anything, just designed it. 
and and said like, hey, is this of interest? And gauging on what he got, and the people that would say, yeah, this is in, this is interesting. Show me what it looks like. He would do a demo on the Figma model and would just be really honest and say like, I haven't built it yet. This is this is just the this is the prototype, whatever you want to call it. And and he'd finish with like, if this is of interest, I'll build it. And people were really like, he was super honest. And people were like, hey, this is really interesting. Like, if you did it, I'm keen. You go, great. I'll put you on like a, I guess it was a wait list, but it was sort of like an early founding members mm-hmm. society thing that he sort of built, mm-hmm. which sounded kind of cool because it makes you want to be a part of it. And yeah, and he did it through, he like validated it and it works really well. And he was like, cool, that's going to give me the backing or even as, even as, a, as like a bootstrapper. I'm not even, don't worry about um, investors, but like it gives you the confidence to go, well, even if I build it tomorrow, he's like 20 buyers or mm-hmm. They might change their mind, but at least here's people who it'll, it'll, it'll give me the confidence. I think there's nothing, there's nothing more nerve wracking and anxious inducing for me than putting heaps of dev work into stuff you haven't somewhat validated yet or got an indication that this is in the right direction. It brings me to one of my frequent soapboxes, which is MVP and our definition of it now, which is to me, we need to stop talking about MVP and just go back to prototype because mm. we, we equate MVP. When people talk about we're about to launch our MVP and it is in their mind, it is the full first working model of first working fully operational version of their product that, mm. and mm. they want to build that before anybody gives them feedback on it, assuming that everyone mm. will flock to it. And that is a, mm-hmm. a component of the work that we do at Product Bus is helping people when they have gotten to that point and people haven't flocked and can be absolutely soul-destroying. The, the, mm-hmm. And it's a combination of, obviously, people are adults and they're responsible for their choices, but it is about mm-hmm. the, the education and the encouragement uh, that is out there. And I've talked about this before, but I think that a lot of times in the incubator accelerator space where there's a lot of nice, you know, there's a lot of niceness, a lot of like, Oh, that's Mm. great. Yeah. If you Mm. get some traction, Mm. come back and talk to me. Mm. But, but people take that as affirmation and encouragement. Mm. So, Oh, Mm. somebody told me that they'd be really interested in this if we got some traction. So let's make more features. Mm. And Mm. sometimes I've had to have some hard conversations with people about, (laughs) <laughs> like I, I would question whether or not that person would actually remember you or not, They're, because that that's mm. the safe thing to Correct. say as a as a, mm-hmm. as a VC as a. I'm not gonna tell people, I would give up, man, <laughs> because mm. if they mm. if they do manage to fluke it and do well, well, sure, I'll make money off of that. But that's really mm. different from, like, and and I think there's also something that's kind of safe or feels safe sitting in the theoretical of, oh yeah, we've got a total adjustable market of 6 million people. Mm. So we're building all this stuff mm. because they're all screaming at our door. And of course mm. we know that's not the, the reality. As you say, yeah, I think it is a, it is a safety because I guess the, a lot of these people do become founders because they, they want to do like sort of do something that they know will work. And, and of course there's a lot of self doubt and I do feel like it is, it is a really hard process. And so I, I, I appreciate why people go to that level and, you know, go, oh, well, they said it's going to be great and it makes me feel good and he said this. And, and it's always good to get positive indication. It's sort of always nice to hear. But I think that whole, you know, under-promise, over-deliver mentality to yourself and going, yeah, like total addressable market as well. And I think rationalizing that back, I'm probably probably too harsh. Like I try to be really firm around like, hey, it's my a total addressable market. And if people go, oh, you know, even if we sold to 1% of these, and I go, what about point one? Or what about point zero one? What does that look mm-hmm. like? And and if you go really hard on yourself and it's still a good number, it's like, hey, you know, worst, 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 worst case is still pretty mm-hmm. good. That gives me confidence. And I, I go like, well, that that should be exciting, right? And 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 if you rationalize it, you look at like and say, I did one a while ago. It was a volunteer management application. And there's something like 50, 60,000 volunteering organizations in Australia. And it was like met with a subset of 100 of them x amount were volunteer based so it was like sort of rationalizing that back and x amount of them used a competitor and they didn't have any plans to switch and it was like you rational it back and i was like so if we take what's left we're in the market the right person at the mm-hmm. right size at the right time at the right and it was like and it was still something like 500 customers and i was like that makes me feel good yeah all things considered you know the biggest rainy day everything falls apart there's still 500 people that could technically again it has a hypothesis <laughs> 
purchase what you're doing. If it, if it came out, there was three people, I'd be worried. And yeah. I think that's the way TAM should be looked at of like the horizon, then a rationalized worst and best case scenario. I, I really appreciate the what you've been saying around using language like hypothesis. I, I'm a very lean startup focused, let everything is learning person. We've got somebody who's come to work with the product bus who I've I've really learned a lot from just in terms of using the language more explicitly. Like right now, this is an experiment. Mm -hmm. Right now it's a hypothesis mm -hmm. and how important that is to that mm -hmm. we understand, because I think sometimes it's easy to assume that you and I know what we're doing right now is a test because we don't know if it's going to work. And sometimes you get further mm -hmm. along and realize that a founder thinks, ah, this is it. I just mm. put a down payment mm. on my mm. yacht. You know, <laughs> you're like, ah. <laughs> yeah. So I was going to say, and a, a spoiler alert for that, it's never like, what that, uh, this is it. Like, you know, people never, are like, oh, this one thing will do never. it. Don't hold, don't hold your breath. It never is. <laughs> I think that one thing that maybe we haven't explained enough is these metrics, like a total addressable market, are things that, they're good sales planning practices. They have mm. a different role in a startup that needs funding or is looking for funding. There are numbers and forecasting mm. and things that you have to be able to do and demonstrate as if you are going down the uh, investor route that I find sometimes bootstrap founders can get bogged down in. Like uh, it'd be really mm -hmm. great to do like some forecasting. It's like, well, right now we sell zero. And so zero mm -hmm. times, <laughs> like it's still zero. It's like, it's yeah, a, yeah. I, I said that to someone recently. It was like, we can't, uh, we can do a forecast, but it's like, it's like a, a work of fiction. It doesn't, we don't know. We haven't proven yeah. that anyone will buy this yet. And so it's that point of mm -hmm. until such time as, I mean, this is different from Tam, but until such time as mm -hmm. we know mm -hmm. that, okay. We've got this sector of people that will buy mm -hmm. what we are selling for this much, then those numbers don't really mm -hmm. mean anything. And yet we seem to want for them, sure. you know, in even when they may not actually be useful. Yep. Yep. And even the um yeah, and I think it's I feel like the marketing and sales perspective of startups is catching up to the product side, like the whole agile of, you know, I feel this this exact same conversation we're having as as, you know, a product roadmap is like you sort of go. Hey, show me the roadmap for the next two years. It's it's redundant, right? It's it's sort of particularly sorry. It might be. I mean, even for for, for bigger companies, it's probably redundant now. But like particularly small ones, you've got the horizons of our next release will be X. The next one after that may be one of four things, and after that we don't know. <laughs> and it's like it's like here is here is like a direction we're going in. And I yeah, I think the same with this one too, right? I think you need to start somewhere. You've got to start at some point, and you've got to go. Okay, we're going after these people because then, as I said, you need to your sales or even if yourself, like from sales, marketing, product perspective, you've got to go to the market with a very clear, we have this thing that will help these people do achieve this thing. And it's got to be really, and that's the sort of, and when I say hypotheses, but we, we, we used to call it bets. We like, I bet this thing will work. And it's like the bet didn't pay off. It mm -hmm. was, you know, we were wrong for these reasons. Because I think it's like a, same with the product roadmap, the whole agile mentality. It's a, I think it all like jumps between each other and it all validates each other. So you go, originally this product does this thing, it helps this person achieve this goal. And and this person is the total dressable market is this big. And then you go out there and you have these conversations. You go, oh, actually, it turns out you know, the, this type of user is terrible for it. Or and this type of user, it's amazing for it. So then okay, you then you go back to those five things again. You go, well, should the product stay the same? And that's the whole product pivoting idea, I guess, of like, okay, now we need to add this like this functionality, or we tried to get the product to be this crowdsourcing tool. But now, actually, hey, let's stop. Let's pull that back. Let's, let's change it. And then it's like when you change that that um, the functionality of it, that changes the use case and the value. The value in the use case just changes the persona. The persona changes the TAM or the sorry total addressable market. And I think it's like an ongoing that you sort of have like a I used to do like a, like a target thing where you got like three targets in a row, and you've got like you start on the outer one. And the idea is just trying to make it go in more and more and more and more until you get to something you're like, okay, this is this is what works. Mm. And I think using your analogy for with uber you know it's like what was their first one it was like luxury uh, luxury taxis or something well, initially yeah was initially it was you call up a number and talk to a human and tell them where you want to go and they booked a black mm. cab for you like that's how they validated it mm. in, a, in a certain yeah. region and i think that's where we we can get kind of hung up with we want something to be product-led 
and not understanding mm-hmm. that even that isn't something that you can just launch out of the box. That is something where you still mm-hmm. have to do more handholding, more manual validation at the beginning mm-hmm. to understand, oh, is this what you want? Would you use it like this? Mm-hmm. And that doesn't always have to be something as super manual as the Uber example. I've seen people mm-hmm. back when, uh, back on, you know, when Twitter was Twitter, the, mm-hmm. the, the build in public <laughs> hashtag that people, I've seen mm-hmm. people use quite successfully to build something that is product led, but get feedback just by showing. So we tried this mm-hmm. and it didn't really work. Now we're going to try this mm-hmm. and uh, you can't do it in a vacuum. And because you mm. know, no one, no one knows that you're there. And that is, I think that mistake. Mm. Let, let me ask you a, a, a hypothetical. So it, mm. if we, we were starting a, a new product, uh, let's make it a B2B product. So I think that a lot of our listeners sit you know, in, in that space. Uh, what, what would your first approaches be in terms of market research and where would Tim fit into that? So where, so where would I start? And this is, I'm going to say, this is the really the big catch 22, right? And I think, and I, I did a post this a while ago that was, and calling myself out too, because I go, you know, you just got to have conversations with your users and your buyers. And the first question is like, how? Like, I can't just call them up. And like, if I'm starting from, as I said, like square one, I've got no users to ask. So who do I talk to? And this is also the really double-edged sword is that, and I've done this from personal experience a couple of times that when you're early, early on, you've got to speak to people. And if you lean on your network of friends or you lean on people and say, hey, do you want to look at this cool thing? You don't attract the right people. Again, from just from my, my experience, you've, you really need to validate, hey, I've got this thing. Do you want to buy it? And sometimes, and to your point before around like, I agree, don't go off and build this big grander thing before you actually start testing. But sometimes, and I, and I remember the biggest feedback we got was people, you'd start the meeting and you'd, you'd talk to them and if you're lucky enough to get the um, meeting with them and because you tried to say like, hey, we're building this thing, it's going to help you do this thing. And they go like, oh, that sounds really interesting. And they jump on the call and inevitably within five, 10 minutes, they're like, great, can you just show me it, please? Can I, like, I, I just want to see how it works. And it was like, okay, so it's not done yet. People, people like to touch and feel things by far. And so in the beginning, getting that team, it's like, there's almost like the whole using a scientific term. It's like you did your desktop research, so your, or your literature review, I guess you could you could call it. And then there's like your experimental testing, where where it's like, hey, doing a desktop research from the comfort of my own home, I'm going to go through and read up and say how many. To your point before, it's like you can Google if you're selling accounting software, how many accountants are there in a, in in Australia, and of those ones, this is look, I you know you're big on the accounting. <laughs> Uh, math, math, and I have a tenuous relationship, so you know you're you're alienating me. But that's <laughs> fine. <laughs> I married one, so maybe that's what's okay. going back to. Me. <laughs> but, but I think it's a it's a good point, right? I was just keeping that that uh, analogy there. But yeah, it's like it's like you can use that research on that and and look up and say, well, podcast host, right? You, you could sort of use anything and just go, well, okay, there's that many people, so that many, and you go, okay, so my theoretical total addressable market is this, and looking at other products out there. There's sort of indicators, right? Like I feel think if there's a lot of competitors in a space, yes, it's not good from a that's going to be harder to get into, but it's good from a validating perspective. It's like if there's more fish there, that means something's mm-hmm. biting. So the people don't waste their time on stuff that's not there. So okay, there's something there. People are having a need. There are sustainable businesses that have been built on the back of this TAM or this area. And you do as much as you can. And you know, there's we're sport for choice now. There's things like Cora. And if you ever use that online site, like Cora, there's Reddit, there's Sorry. You know, yeah. I just Cora, I, I just haven't worked out yet. I get Reddit vibes from Cora in the like, am I gonna learn from this or am I gonna be radicalized by something? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> is this a conspiracy theory yeah. or is it actually gonna help me? <laughs> yeah. it, it, it is a, like a I guess it depends and uh, hopefully that's a um and I agree that I've definitely been on some rabbit holes and it's gone all over the place. But so like I think there's just forums, mm-hmm. I guess, and there's thousands of them out there. And actually one I saw the other day and I'm I'm just definitely stealing it. Is that someone said, go on there and find a product that exists and whatever you call a competitor. If you're early days on, you really don't know who your competitors are yet. You've got an idea of who they could be. But go to someone who looks like you to your users and selling to your users and go to their Google or their Captera or their review sites and read through all their reviews and find all the ones that got zero or two stars or one star and see what they're saying. And I was like, that is genius. Mm-hmm. And because it's like, here's, here's the common challenge that this person, you know, again, if it's a uh, podcast host, right? <laughs> it's like looking at Microsoft, uh, sorry, microphone hardware. It's like, if I want to invent a new microphone, I want to find what everyone's angry with. I want to find what everyone loves. I want to find the price point they're at. Mm-hmm. 
And, and it's like, there's so much you can do, but again, it's all, it's like reading recipes. You can read a million recipes, but it doesn't make you a good chef. No. And it's like, that's all helpful. Yes. And I think that, I mean, that is a really good example. I think that it, in consumer space, in a B2C space, absolutely, that sort of data is readily available. Sometimes in B2B, particularly like software as a service, it can be hard to find those those mm. niches like some people don't mm. belong to groups that identify them by their job because they don't like it <laughs> and so mm. you know mm. it is but i no, absolutely understand what you're saying mm. and i think and it's, it's a good point i think b2b yeah b2b is tricky and i think there are some ways those like those first couple ones i mean even if you go on linkedin you type in you know hashtag microphones right mm. or whatever that topic is or hashtag that that persona or that person and you read through the feed and what people are posting about, LinkedIn's getting better. Some of the content's pretty, still pretty mm. average, but at least I think it gives you an idea, okay, this is what's trending. This mm. is what people think about, what people care mm. about. There's thousands of, I was working with a mining client the other day. There is like hundreds of publications of free newsletters that people sort of send out. There's heaps of different data you can find from podcasts or, or even if you can, even reaching out to people and being like, Hey, I'm doing research on this. Can I talk to you about a couple yeah. of things? And sometimes they're pretty open to it. Industry bodies can be a good one. You know, it depends on, on the industry, but they can be quite useful in that space. Mm-hmm. Another one too, while we're talking about looking at competitors and getting that sort of what do people hate space, often defining who that is, like it may not be a direct competitor. It may be, and again, I'm going to the B2B side with software where mm. people may be using a piece of software to do the particular problem that you're solving that isn't really fit for purpose. And so it could be, what do you hate about browsers or operating systems or a particular large software product like HubSpot and finding mm. those sort of niches there? Because even if it's just language that starts to that particularly in when we're in that validation stage, when we still could go in multiple directions about how we identify the problem that we're solving and solve it. Mm-hmm. Reflecting that language back that is like, have you ever had a problem where X, if, if you can use language that's come out of that, mm-hmm. that's obviously very powerful. Mm-hmm. And it is. It's like, And I think that's where that SME side of it comes into it, that if you can ask the right, I guess it all comes down to asking the right question. I think the easiest, fastest, and, and most effective, of course, is always showing them this product and how it works and how it, how it can do it. And then going, what do you think? And then hopefully they go, great, I'll take one or no, it doesn't help me with this. Or that's, that's, that's going to be your best like quality yeah. feedback. But again, to your point, you shouldn't, I don't think the need of spending so much money on developing it until you're sure of, but yeah, I, I think there's another one I've, I've done previously, which worked quite well. And I did like an industry white paper and this was um, in the same one again. I, I try to say, I'm writing a white paper. I need research. And I'd love to interview someone for 15 minutes or answer a survey. It's like 10 questions. And, and I think the biggest thing I learned is that people, and myself included, don't give away their time for nothing. Like they want to know. Some people are nice. They're willing to give it to you. But like they want something out of it. You know, it's like they want, if they're going to give you their time, I try to say, hey, if you if you register, we'll give you the a free copy of the white mm. book of the white paper or the or the ebook. They need something, and like the, I guess the idea of someone saying, hey, "I've got this new product. Do, do you want to see it?" It's sort of that cool, enticing thing that we're like, "Yeah, actually, I do want to see that." That's that's kind of interesting. By far, the number one struggle that I've dealt with, and I've heard many people deal with, is like giving someone a, re- a legitimate reason that that allows them to talk to you about their problem in time. I've seen people offer like $200 gift cards, right? Which which is great. And it, it can work. It can be fantastic. But early stage founders might struggle with that a bit. And it's like, it, but I can say that definitely does work. I've done it in the oh, past. Sure. <laughs> people are willing to. Yeah. 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 Well, it, it, sometimes it doesn't, you don't have to do that at scale either. It might be just to get those kind mm. of initial conversations going. Having some offer mm. uh, in that space can be very valuable. It, just as we mm. as we wrap up, if you had one piece of advice in this space for a bootstrapping founder, if you could only t- advise them to do one thing, what would it be? I don't know if it's one thing, but I'd say just go and talk to the people that you want to sell mm-hmm. to. And I think take that as you will, whether that's online, phone call, networking event, whatever that looks like. Just go ahead and talk to them and ask them questions. Mm-hmm. It's if you're looking to get in the mining industry, for for example, and I say this because I received an email not long ago of like a network event. Go to it, is listen it to what they're mine? saying. 
You have to go underground. Sorry, is the, is the event in a mine? <laughs> Thankfully okay, not. Yeah. No, no, it's just down to the local okay, hotel. Okay. So. Yeah, I'm up for that. No worries. Yeah. Small spaces. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. I definitely don't do that. Uh, but yeah, I think I'd say yeah. Go, like, go and talk to people, and I say it's like before. There's a million things you can do. There is no, there is no right or wrong. There's a million ways to skin a cat, and so I think. But by far, one thing I, I've seen work more times than not, and be the most impactful thing you can do is talk to your buyers wherever, however you can. Be creative. Think of ways to talk to them. And I always set at least I try to set a goal of fifty people, and I have to always say to people like. We can get into semantics and what and what you can do and maybe refining it, but I always try try to say talk before you think about building something. Talk to fifty people you want to sell to, and then reevaluate what you want to build. And if they prove it and they go, "Yep, this is exactly right," great, kick on. But I think not enough people talk to their potential buyers. I will no, say, I hundred percent agree. I really love what you are saying there, and I think that one thing that we have we definitely understand now is that we need to be solving a problem. And I think that that next step of how you prove out that the problem that you are solving and the solution that you have to it is actually something that people will pay for is that next step of mm-hmm. we, we want to find the problem, get a bit of validation, go away and build and assume that what we're presenting is something that people want instead of going that next step of really having those conversations. And maybe some of it is because we just don't like hearing no. No one wants mm. to be told that their baby is ugly. But the, the <laughs> earlier that you do that, the less painful it is. You, know, you go away and, and spend however mm-hmm. long and however much money making the thing and then no one wants it. That's a lot more heartbreaking than having conversations with people and realizing, oh, nope, not a thing. Very, very good advice. Mm, 100%. Awesome. I think even talking to people at the end, it'll help you validate the problem. I think it'll build an intuition to your buyer as well. You'll understand who they are. It's like the persona on on paper versus the persona of it's like you've got a friend of yours, you know your friend really well. And you know, before if you show them a movie, before you even show it to them, you know what they're gonna say. Mm. You you know them inside and out, you know their loves, their hates, their, you know, their desires and and you know what they're gonna find funny, you know what they're gonna find offensive. And I think the same goes to these customers that when you meet enough of them. You develop an intuition that whilst you still need to validate things, you'll almost get a feel for, okay, how should I build this next thing? Or how, or how should I run this ad? Or how should I do this demo? And you're like, well, typically my users are cranky, so I'm going to be quick to it. You know, it's like you develop a nice, uh, a nice intuition. So <laughs> I'll leave Fantastic. it there. Fantastic. Hey? Alex, thanks so much for your time. Awesome, Scotty. Thanks for the show. It was awesome. Yay. You can find out more about Alex Urquhart and Market Science at market-science.co. And that's it for the bootstrap for this episode. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe or follow the show wherever you listen. And of course, we'd love a positive rating and review to help others find the show. Even better, share the show with a friend or anyone who will listen, even if you don't like them. We now have our own LinkedIn page. Just search the bootstrap startups from scratch and we're working on our social media presence. But for now, you can find the product bus on most platforms and interact with the bootstrap post there. We'd love to hear from you. The Bootstrap is a production of Swivel Media and The Product Bus. It was developed by me, Scotty Allen, and Declan McGee. This episode was produced and written by Declan McGee. We were edited by Sammy Perriman. Original sound design by Rob Clark. If you're an early-stage founder looking for resources and practical help, check out theproductbus.com and get in touch.